0: Saturday 17th of March Mike Tindall took us through the book of Exodus at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. Mike is the Acts 29 Regional Director for England as well as the Senior Pastor of Grace Church Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. We've actually had three separate goes at Exodus in our church on Sunday mornings over the last nine years. We've never done the whole book and I reckon we must have preached on it 30 times. So I'm trying to get this into one hour. So you know what that means don't you? Speak quickly. Speak quickly. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Is that a (laughs) ringtone? Don't know what it is. It's (laughs) It's all right. Everybody loves a good story. If you spend any time at all with children, pretty soon they will ask you to tell them a story. My kids love to hear what people did when they were young. What did you do when you were young? Even the most boring stories, they love hearing them. But not just kids, we all love a good story, hence the popularity of films and the enduring power of novels. A really good story usually has tension. There's some kind of conflict that has to be resolved. Will Mr Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet finally get together or will Pride and Prejudice keep them apart? Will Maximus get his vengeance for a murdered son and a murdered wife? Or will the scheming emperor have the last laugh? Will Frodo destroy the ring and Sauron's power? Or will evil triumph and ruin everything good? You know, stories. Such stories have got great power to capture our imagination. They deal with the big themes. Love, justice, freedom, hope, friendship, good and evil. And the book of Exodus is one such story. A truly great story. It begins with 70 people who've gone to live in Egypt because of a famine. And it ends with a great nation. On their way to a promised land with the living God in their midst. And the rest of the book tells you how we get from A to B. Slavery. Infanticide. Deliverance. A bush that burns and does not go out. An epic confrontation between the most powerful man on earth and the living God. Ten plagues inflicted on a superpower pharaoh's surrender then his change of heart the parting of the red sea the people go through on dry land the destruction of pharaoh's army bread from heaven water from a rock the presence of the living god coming down on top of a mountain in fire thunder lightning and thick cloud the ten commandments and that's just the first half of the story we haven't even got to the spoiler about what happens at the end now what about the second half of the book at first blush it does look like this is the boring bit A lot of it is about the design and construction of a tent called the tabernacle. And what about priests and what they wear and have to do? But this stuff is not boring once we understand how it all fits together. Once you get to grips with it, the tabernacle actually blows your mind. And not just the minds of Bible geeks like you who come out on a Saturday morning to the school of theology. But before we get into the story, I just want to pull back and ask a bigger question. What is Exodus all about? what's its major theme is it just a great story I don't think it is I think it's it's a lot more than that I think fundamentally exodus is about knowing God knowing God that's the main point how can you know God what is he like can you be in a relationship with God does he want to know you and if so how should you behave I've got a quote here on the handout. I'm very proud, by the way. I put that logo on there myself. This is the biggest tech achievement of my life. I don't know how I did it, I probably couldn't repeat it. But anyway, on the left hand side of this sheet, you've got a quote from a, an Irish scholar called Desmond Alexander. Exodus is essentially a book about knowing God through personal experience. The plot centers on the relationship that develops between the Lord God and the Israelites. From the dramatic meeting with Moses at the burning bush, chapter 3, to the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, chapter 40, the end. Throughout Exodus, God always takes the initiative, revealing himself not only through words, but also through signs and wonders. In differing ways, he reveals his most significant attributes, his sovereign majesty, his holiness, his power to perform signs and wonders, his awesome glory, his righteousness, his compassion. An Old Testament scholar called Tom Petter, who's a friend of mine, preached a great sermon on Exodus, and he used the analogy of his marriage. Uh, He'd got to know Donna, they dated a while, and she agreed to marry him. And then he said, I had to know how to act in the relationship. Because knowing her was about a lot more than just cognitive data, you know, intellectual knowledge. Uh, Knowing her transformed the whole of his life. He had to know how to behave now in the relationship. Among other things, he said he had to learn that what he thought was a clean kitchen actually was not a clean kitchen at all. Now, Exodus is a bit like that. It can be divided into two parts. In the first part, we learn about coming to a personal knowledge of the living God. We learn about his nature and his desire to, that people know who he is. And there's a contrast between those who obey God who know him truly, like Moses, and those who don't know him and therefore oppose him. Like the Pharaoh. And now the second part of Exodus further develops this theme of knowing God. But in the second half, it shows that God establishes a special relationship with his people, the Israelites. And in this second part, Exodus focuses on two things. The making of a covenant, which is a special kind of agreement. And the construction of a special tent. So the covenant and the tabernacle. This covenant is a legal contract that shows how you are to behave now. And we're in covenant too, you know, we're, we're, we're under the new covenant as believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus institutes the covenant with his supper, the Lord's Supper. We're all in, in covenant with God, if you follow Christ. Uh, and so they get this covenant, the old covenant, and it shows how to behave. And then they're given the instructions for the tent, which is where to meet God, showing that he's going to live with them. He wants to be in the middle of them and make his home with them. So Exodus is all about knowing God. And I hope you agree that is a vital thing for us to think about. All around the world, people are asking questions about God. And throughout history, people have groped for answers. The finest minds have grappled with these issues. Is there a God? What is he like? Can I know him? And the answer of Exodus is yes, there is a God. You can know him. Here is what he is like. And more than that, incredibly, this great God wants to know you and live with you. No, wonderful. So I'm just going to quickly go through the left hand there. There's a structure, just to give you an overview. Uh, we can't spend much time on it. Chapters 1 to 19, major theme, coming to a personal knowledge of God. The book will answer Pharaoh's question. Pharaoh's question is, Who is the Lord? Well, the book's going to answer that. Chapters 1 to 4, you've got the introduction Egypt, the Israelites, Moses, and Yahweh. That's the, the word for Lord. We'll talk more about that later, Yahweh. Chapters 5 through 12 is the confrontation with Pharaoh and the 10 signs. Sometimes called the 10 plagues. Perhaps a bit inaccurately, they are more signs than plagues. Chapters 13 to 19, the exodus from Egypt and their journey to Mount Sinai where they come to meet God. Okay, that's the first half. Second half, chapters 20 to 40, God establishes this special relationship with his people, the Israelites. He makes a covenant that sets out the conditions under which they must live. Chapter 20 is the Decalogue. Uh, You know that as the Ten Commandments. Literally, it's the Ten Words. These are a set of model laws that encapsulate uh, the heart of what it means to follow God. I'm just going to do a brief segue on this, actually. You remember Jesus has once asked, which is the most important commandment? And he said, well, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbour as yourself. So the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, are those two... Expand into 10. So the first four is, how do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? And the last six is, how do I love my neighbour as myself? Now that's, so you've got two commandments into 10. And then there's more than 600 in uh, Leviticus, which explain that in much more detail at a particular time and context. But I'm sure you're going to do that in future weeks. That's just a preview of forthcoming attractions. <laughs> right after the 10 words, in chapter 20, verse verse 22, to 2333, you have a section which is known as by scholars as the Book of the Covenant. And it's a section of model laws. It always looks a bit weird. What's this doing here? And what it is, is a, is a, a section of model laws on which you could base your legal system. That's what it, its function is. In chapter 24, they confirm or ratify the covenant with God. And then 25 to 40 is mostly about the tabernacle and the priests. With some narrative woven in. Chapters 32 to 33, they nearly blow the whole relationship right at the start through uh, the golden calf episode. But thank God he is a God of mercy and Moses intercedes and God relents. And so the the construction of the tabernacle continues. And at the end of the book, God moves in. He takes up residence with his people. Chapter 40. So there's the outline. Okay, Uh, I'm going to spend most of my time in the first three chapters, actually, just to... Dig into the text more deeply with you, and uh, I think the big ideas come out in those first three. So, a few years ago, we went glamping in a remote part of mid Wales. My wife is never going to go real camping, but she would settle for glamping. It was a yurt farm. Have you ever seen these things? It's kind of a farm, but it had some wooden structures that they'd got from Mongolia, I think. <laughs> Lots of fun and uh, my wife's extended family, we all got together. But for me, the highlight of the trip was seeing the stars. don't see them very often in Manchester, do you? Have you ever gazed at the night sky on a clear night away from the urban glow? It is breathtaking. You know, it is astonishing when you, you see a real shooting star. They, they're actually real, they're not just in rom-coms. <laughs> And even a dim awareness of the vastness of the universe and how far away those stars are and how absolutely minuscule we are has to make you think about life. And that very same month we came back to Manchester, received news that a friend here in Didsbury had died. Not an old man, man in his 40s, good guy, loyal friend, good husband, father of two girls, gone before his time, we would say. Before his time. But then how long have you got? How much time do you have? Who am I? Where do I come from? What's my future? How do I fit in? Do you ever find yourself asking those kind of questions? Surely you do. There's a universal desire to explain who we are and what we're doing here. Some say we're part of a universal spirit. Not the Bible. Some say we're food for earthworms. An old friend once said to me. In another 20 years, I will probably be fertilizer. (laughs) What a thought. Now, these are important questions. And according to the Bible, you can't answer them without knowing God. You can't actually know yourself without knowing him. That's how Calvin's Institutes begins. All true knowledge is bound up in these two things, knowing God and knowing ourselves. Without God, we are like rats in a laboratory maze, desperately seeking the exit, but never lifting our eyes beyond the nearest wall. We're like hamsters running on an endless wheel, pouring our energy into the immediate, but never going anywhere. We can't understand who we are or what we're meant to be. We can't understand the reality of our own hearts until we know our maker. And Exodus is showing us how to know the Lord. And when we know him, we gain a proper perspective on our lives. You know, I think the biggest problem most of us have, most Christians have, is we don't really know God. We don't really know him. Listen to these words from a hymn. It was written in 1698. Fear him. Fear God. Fear him ye saints. And you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight. He'll make your wants his care. Fear him ye saints. And you will then have nothing else to fear. Make his service your delight. and, And he'll make your wants his care. But do we fear him? really we don't need more bible trivia do we on the CCM school of theology we need to know God that's why you're here because knowing him will change the way we look at everything we need transformation C.S. Lewis wrote I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it but because by it I see everything else that's why Exodus is so important for us It's written for us to know the Lord. That's why it's in the Bible. A book about knowing God through personal experience. The question Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? Is answered in chapter 9 verse 16. If you want to turn over to that. Uh, God answers the question. This is why he's uh, revealed himself. Chapter 9 verse 16. I have raised you up for this very purpose. That I might show you my power. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that my name might be proclaimed in other words that true knowledge of god may be published abroad and accessed by everyone who asks for it now the root of the word exodus means the road out the road out and that's what the story tells rescue deliverance from slavery and the road out of it and the first two chapters set the scene i don't think we've got time to read them andy have we Perhaps we should, I'll I'll, uh, just read bits as we go along. But I'm going to highlight three points, and they're on the right-hand side of your handout, the talk outline there. Chapters 1 to 2, Unyielding Slavery, An Unchanging Sovereign, and An Unlikely Saviour. Unyielding Slavery, Unchanging Sovereign, Unlikely Saviour. Unyielding Slavery. Now, have a look at Exodus. Turn turn to chapter 1, would you, if you've got your Bible there. Or swipe your phone to chapter 1. And tell me, what is the first word in Exodus? You know when preachers do this, it's always a trick, isn't it? What is the first word? Now or these? Any more? Okay, in the Hebrew language, the first word is and. And. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Now, that's very interesting. If you begin a sentence with and, it suggests, someone just said it here, continuation. And that's what Exodus is. It's actually following right on from the end of Genesis. Did you do that last week? Genesis, you've done that. So, Genesis ends, so Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So, you, you, do you remember uh, as a kid watching a TV programme, really exciting one, and it ends... And so it's about to happen and it's, you want to know what's going to happen and it's a cliffhanger and then it, the dreaded words come up to be continued <laughs> that's what Genesis did it's to be continued so Exodus is resuming a great saga now reading it like that so reading it in context of Genesis not just plucking it out on its own is very interesting we see some amazing things remember how Genesis began in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth And the creation account. And what God's mandate for his uh, creatures, for his vice-regents on the earth, humanity, was to be fruitful and multiply. That was the mandate that he gave them in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And here, have a look at chapter 1 verse 7 of Exodus. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was... Filled with them. Now this language deliberately echoes the the command that God gave in Genesis 1. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the first time those words have appeared together since the creation mandate. So what is the writer doing? He's showing us that in this people God is fulfilling his purposes for the world. For humanity. So God is blessing them in Egypt. Because they've been fruitful and multiplied. But thinking again about Genesis, chapter twelve of Genesis, which if you've got a a yellow highlighter, you should highlight, you know, and and make it really stand out, is the turning point of the whole Bible. Chapter twelve, God appears to Abraham and makes promises to him, and God says, uh, you know, I will bless you, and I will those who curse you I will curse, and those who bless you I will bless, and through you all nations on earth, every family on earth will be blessed. And you have to get up and go and follow me and I'll be with you. But in view of that, are they being protected? Is God keeping his promise here? What's God doing? They're in slavery. He's strangely quiet. And it's all the more perplexing when we see how the people are being treated. Chapter 1, verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, the king says. Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave country so the king plans to deal shrewdly with them how does he do it verse 11 they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built python and ramses as store cities for pharaoh they want to break their spirit but it doesn't work verse 12 the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread so the egyptians came to dread the israelites so what do they do verse 13 they worked them ruthlessly Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard labor. What a thing to say, they made their lives bitter. Do you know what that tastes like? When life itself becomes bitter? And you know it gets even worse here, verse 16. When you help the Hebrew women, this is tells the midwives, this is telling the NHS midwives here. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, kill him let her live wow planned infanticide to control the population through the medical profession and when it doesn't work verse 22 look what he does next Pharaoh gave this order to all his people every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live he tells the people that so any Egyptian can at this point take a Hebrew baby boy and throw him into the river Now, if you know anything about the history of the 20th century, you know what this looks like. The 20th century, the century of Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin. The century of the Gulag and the concentration camp. Scorched earth, ethnic cleansing. It was the century of the Rwandan genocide. We know what this looks like. And so chapters 1 and 2 here are presenting a scene of abject misery. And it goes on For a long time, chapter 2, verse 23, during that long period, the people groan and cry out. It's an unyielding slavery. And to our eyes, I think it's inexplicable. Why would God allow this for his chosen people? And they cry out, how long, O Lord? Now, I think this text is confronting us with one of the hard questions of the Christian faith. Where is God in all the suffering? Is he real? Does he really care? And the first thing we see here in Exodus is that sometimes God's people do suffer. And sometimes that suffering is long and painful and inexplicable. Why? Now the Bible's answer to that question is very deep and very complex and very nuanced. And we don't have time to unpack it fully today. But according to the Bible, suffering is not necessarily as a punishment. Like you did something wrong and you must deserve it somehow. That's what Job's counsellors told him. Job's so-called friends said, Job, you must have done something to deserve this. It's got to be your just desserts. No. The answer of Job is no. And the answer of Exodus is this. Some suffering happens so that God will get more glory in the end. That could be a word for you here today. Some suffering in your life or your children or your family. Maybe it's happening so that God will get more glory. Now that is starting to reorient our lives, isn't it? What this is telling me is that my life isn't all about me, as I tend to think it is. It's all about the glory of God. And if I can grasp this, it will change everything about me, including the way that I suffer, the way I process that. You may have heard of a woman called Joni Erickson Tarder. She was a, a very athletic teenager, I think. She was into swimming and diving, and one time she dived uh, into some shallow water, didn't realise there were rocks there, and she broke her neck, and she's been paralysed from the neck down ever since. She was able to write, She's actually able to paint using a paintbrush held in her teeth, because she could just move in her head, but she could dictate books. And she wrote this, Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Say that again. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. She says, when we get to heaven, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. And she wrote this, I hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct, she says. But I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And I I can hardly read this actually without tearing up. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my saviour, holding his nail-pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it. Because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble. Because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It would never have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Wow. To be able to say that after decades, in it? Joni Eriksentarder grasps something in her heart that we need to grasp too. This is the second point. God is an unchanging sovereign. Unyielding slavery, but God is an unchanging sovereign. I wonder how you tend to think of God. What's your mental picture of him? Some people think of God as an impersonal force. Some think of him as a benign Father Christmas. He might help me if I'm good. Others project the image of their dad. A friend once said to me, I tend to think of God as a short, angry Scotsman with ginger hair. <laughs> now, the Bible's primary image for God is that of a great king. It's the primary image. A great king. But I'm going to use the word sovereign here for three reasons. Firstly, I think king can conjure up localized examples that are a bit silly, like King Henry VIII. Secondly, sovereign captures the grandeur of supreme power and thirdly i needed a word beginning with s (laughs) slavery sovereign savior all baptists have to have three points beginning with the same letter you know that okay god is sovereign that means he reigns what kind of ruler is he genesis has showed him creating the world with wonderful beauty creativity then resting To enjoy the fruits of his finished work. His creation. Shows him providing for humankind. Creating amazing opportunities for them. Giving them purpose. Shows him as a being who loves passionately. A being of uh, ultimate power. A a being who's supremely holy. And supremely happy. This God is actively sustaining the world. It's not a, a distant kind of deist God. He actively sustains it. He governs it, but he's not a puppet master. He gives humanity dignity and freedom to go their own way. He is patient and kind. And even when people rebel against him, he is both holy and gracious. While he must punish wrong, he also promises a deliverer. This is God. Bible also shows God relating to people through covenants, which are these legal treaties. kind of a way of formalizing a relationship. Now a covenant contains promises. And commitments on both sides. The closest thing we have to it in our culture is a marriage covenant. You make promises and commitments. And you're bound together. In an intimate relationship that's also legal. So it's, it's more intimate than just something legal. But it's more binding than something that's just emotional. That's a covenant. And God binds himself to his people through these covenants. In the Bible. And he makes promises. He even makes a promise to Abraham that he will take the punishment they deserve so that the covenant won't fail. Wonderful. Now, are you glimpsing some kind of vision here of what sort of sovereign we're talking about? Faithful to his promises, unchanging in his character, but far above us. How unsearchable are his judgments, says Paul, Romans. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So suffering may not have a quick fix. But it does have an overarching purpose. The unyielding suffering of the Israelites was not a surprise. It was foretold centuries before in Genesis 15, verse 13 to 14, if you want to look that up. Um, we don't have time for that now, but just make a note. Uh, the, the suffering of the Israelites was foretold centuries before. And God also foretold that he would bring them out. So when we read here Exodus 2, have a look at how God responds. Exodus 2, 23 24. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. He remembered his covenant, not in the sense that he'd forgotten about it. But in the sense that he now decided to put it into action. So let me ask, have you ever cried out to God for help? If you're suffering, who are you talking to? A couple of years ago, a young woman at Salford Uni cried out to God. She wasn't from a Christian family, but she had met Christians at the university. And she'd gone to the Christian Union out of curiosity. And she wrote these words, I was having a really bad day to the point where I just broke down, I couldn't cope anymore." It was after midnight when this happened and my housemates were asleep and I had no one to talk to. In simple desperation, I asked God for help. And in that one moment, I I understood that God was there. And of course, he'd help me. He will always help me. It was strange. Going from extremely unhappy to filled with joy in a second. And it was the best moment. Her name is Jenny. She was baptised at our church after that. Notice, though, the outcome of suffering was crying to God and finding him. And this is how God keeps his promises. The third thing we find in this passage is an unlikely saviour. So we've had the slavery, the sovereign, and thirdly, the saviour. Here, quietly, in the midst of the misery, God is preparing a saviour, a rescuer, and his name is Moses. Now, this is really interesting language here. Have a look at chapter 2. In the Hebrew language, there's stuff going on under the surface. Uh, Could somebody read out Exodus 2, verse 2, nice and loud? (coughs) One at a time, please. So the the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Great. Your version says she saw that he was a beautiful child... Mine says she saw that he was a fine child. Anyone got any variations on that? Special. Special. Now, here's the interesting thing. Do you remember when God created the world? I mean, not that you were there, but you read it in Genesis. And what does he say after uh, each day? He saw that it was, good. it was good. He saw it was good. It's this, it's this um, kind of refrain that comes after every day and then finally do you remember what he says after he's created humankind well he saw that it was very good or well good yes now the hebrew word there tov which is translated good can also be translated beautiful or fine and what we have here again in the language is seeing and good just as we had with the date of creation this repetition is significant because it's about what God is doing in the world through Moses. And there's another interesting little uh, echo in here. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Uh, does anyone have a different translation for basket? Oh. Who's that? This Ark! What version have you got? NKJV. NKJV. God bless the NKJV. He's taking my point away. But it's there. It's the word for ark. Which has only previously been used about Noah's ark. Do you see how interesting that is? It's not just a basket. There's another word they could have used for basket. What the writer is showing us is that God is doing a new creation here. Through this person. God sees that they see that he's good, which is creation language and then he's hidden in the ark put in the water and out, he's going to be taken out of the water onto dry land. And the whole of the creation account is about God separating out water from dry land and making, seeing that it's good and creating order and creating a people that are going to live there. So what is happening here with Moses is that God is going to create a new creation a new people A new world. And this new creation starts in the most weak looking way. So Moses, I'm sure you know the story. He's got a passion for justice but he ends up estranged from everyone. His own people don't trust him. And the Egyptians don't trust him because he killed a, a slave master. In order to lead his people, Moses has to lose his influence and his throne. Moses has to become a nobody out in the desert before he can lead the people out of slavery. Uh, What an unlikely savior. He's estranged from everyone. He's lost his influence and his throne. He's become a nobody before he can lead the people out of slavery. And that's what he does in the most spectacular manner. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, what does this have to do with me on Monday morning? Well, let me ask you one question. Are you a slave? And you think, well, no, I don't get paid much, but I'm not a slave. Hold on a minute. Just think about the conditions of slavery that Exodus describes. Chapter 1, verse 13, they were worked ruthlessly and that made life bitter. Chapter 2, verse 23, they were groaning and crying for help. I want to propose to you that in our hearts, many more people are slaves than we realize. Many, many more people, many of us are slaves our life has become bitter and we've groan and cry for help what are the slave masters? anything that makes your life bitter works you ruthlessly and leaves you groaning do you ever self-harm or tempted to self-harm then you're a slave to something if you uh, hate looking at yourself in the mirror or you have an eating disorder you, you're probably a slave to something If you ever fail, and the feeling of failure is so crushing that you hate yourself and your life, you feel like dying, you're a slave. If you're addicted to something you can't let go of, drink, porn, fantasy, you're a slave. If you work much harder than you need to, you always need to be top of the class, you dread being mediocre or second-rate, then you are a slave. If you're driven by fear of being single or fear of being poor, And you make bad choices as a result. Then you're a slave. If you're obsessed with the quest to be beautiful. And it takes away your joy. Then you're enslaved. If your children dominate your life. And their happiness or success rules you. You're enslaved to your children. If you're obsessively self-protective. And you can't let people in. You're a slave. We're enslaved by far more things than we realise. Anything that works you ruthlessly. Makes your life bitter. Is a form of slavery. We just didn't realise it. A lot more people are enslaved than they think. Because most slavery is in the mind. Most slavery is the slavery of the spirit. We're a slave to our own significance. We're a slave to our own security. Why are we like this? The Bible would say it's because we're wired to serve. Nobody's truly free in the sense of being completely detached. Everybody serves something. But you have to ask, is the thing I'm serving giving me life? Or taking my life away. And the story of Exodus is the story of a change in servitude. The Israelites go from being slaves of Pharaoh to slaves of Yahweh, servants of Yahweh. They are set free, but freedom means being given a new master who is God. That's what we need. And I know, I think I'm talking to a room full of Christians. You know, a lot of us are still living as slaves. We followed Jesus and then part of our life we went back to Egypt part of our life we forgot about Jesus in that part of my life but think about him the unlikely saviour the one who had a passion for justice but ended up estranged from everyone the one who in order to lead his people had to lose his influence and his throne the one who had to become a nobody out on the cross so he could lead his people out of slavery that is our God Jesus okay Let's get going, Uh, just while you're taking your seats, Andy asked me to put a few suggested resources on there, so bottom of the right hand column. One of them is the book I quoted from earlier, Desmond Alexander, T.D. Alexander, From Paradise to Promised Land, it's a phenomenal book about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Really, really reliable. Good. He's a top scholar and a uh, and a proper Christian. So that is that is. What's an improper Christian? He's a he's a born again brother. Uh, The other book is a little bit more technical, but it's just a delight. It's called Dominion and Dynasty: A Theology of the Hebrew Bible by Stephen Dempster, who's a Canadian uh, scholar and a, a just a really rich going through the whole of the old testament in a literary theological way Um, so i I my copy is absolutely falling apart i love this book dominion and dynasty those two are great third one by one of my teachers jeff niehaus god at sinai those would be three more biblical theology kind of books and then there are, are four commentaries on there for those of you who want to go more in depth on exodus at different levels um all good Doug Stewart is particularly good. Douglas Stewart. So that's just a bit about that. Okay. Well, we've got some coffee. We're fueled up for the second round. Start the recording again. Okay. So we finished up the first session talking about um, slavery, sovereignty, the unlikely saviour. And you know that God's word is living and active. It's a. New testament says, it's like a two edged sword, it pierces through, can cut through, dividing even the soul and spirit. These things, Corinthians says, were written down for us for our instruction, so it 's entirely appropriate to ask, what does this mean for me? now, I asked you know one question at the end of that first session about uh, in what sense are we slaves to things, and i 'm not belittling the existence of literal slavery that we know of in history and even the slavery that exists today even in manchester but we do we should recognize that the bible uses slavery as a category to talk about life apart from god life serving any other master than the living god is slavery jesus himself said everyone who sins is a slave to sin and he promised if the son sets you free you will be free indeed So by our nature, we're enslaved to this thing called sin, living life for our own glory, not God's glory, and reaping this bitter harvest. So according to the Bible, we are all slaves and need a new sovereign. And the story of Exodus, as I've said already, is the story of a change in servitude. The people go from being slaves of Pharaoh to being servants of the Lord. They're set free, given a new master. Now, when I first preached on this at Grace Church, somebody came up to me a week later. And said, I realise for the first time in my life, I'm a slave to my life. So, what part of the job of growing in Christ, growing in, as a Christian, is going after the tumours in your own heart and shrinking them with God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit? How can we live in such a way that we are no longer enslaved by these things? How can we live a life that is full and free and flourishing? Some people answer that question by saying, you need a new vision of you. You need a, you need a new vision of you. You know, you need to realise you are a great person. You've got a lot going for you. You've got so much potential. You know, you are loved by a lot of people. You just need to love yourself. You know, that kind of thing. But that is not the answer the Bible gives. Growing in self-esteem may be superficial or even toxic, according to the Bible. It won't do the job of setting you free. Notice what happens when Moses asks the question here in chapter 3, verse 11. We're going on to chapter 3 now. Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And how does God respond? Does he say, don't worry, Moses, you're great. We all think you can do it. Believe in yourself. You know, you had great experience of the inner workings of Pharaoh's prowess. And you looked the part. You can speak Egyptian, you you study the literature of the Egyptians, you even walk like an Egyptian. Thank you. And don't worry about the speech impediment, we can work with that. All right. you're getting on in years, 40 years in the wilderness, you know, but herding those sheep has given you a certain gravitas. That's not how God responds. To the question 3.11, who am I? God says wish i could do a big deep voice who i am (laughs) who am i says moses god says who i am that's what you need to know you need to know who god is he says i will be with you look at it verse 12 i will be with you that's the response in other words you don't need a better vision of me you need a better vision of god you need a bigger vision of God. And only this will carry you through the darkest times. If you grasp a vision of God, it can carry you through. It will hold you by the hand in times of doubt and darkness. It will make you stand up and turn around in times of sin. It will hold you in times of suffering. We need a vision that can free us to live in the light. You need a bigger vision of God. We had a baptismal service at our church a few years ago, a great occasion. And a woman called Ali told her story, and I've just taken her words with her permission. uh, What she wrote, it's been a tough few years. My mum was diagnosed with cancer in 2011, and after battling it for two years, she died last summer. She died quite young. Every day of those two years, I would tell myself many times, remember what you know is true. God is loving. He knows what he's doing. He's not deserted us. Mum is safe in his hands. But if I'm honest, it didn't always feel that way. At times, it felt more like torture than love. I didn't understand what God was doing, and sometimes it felt like He just wasn't there at all. I felt like one more thing would break me. A year on, I still can't say I have all the answers, but I can say I've never been more sure that God is loving, that He is good and faithful to His promises. God carried me through each day, and I'm convinced He always will when I was angry with him and doubted he never turned his back on me I'm more aware than ever that the world and my heart is broken but Jesus has completely and perfectly dealt with my brokenness and promised the most amazing and undeserved future with him which is the most precious thing ever you see what happened in the midst of that suffering she grasped a bigger vision of God that's what we need And that's what chapter 3 of Exodus gives us. And there are two points here. So it sounds like you're getting off lightly. But notice each one has three sub-points. This is really a six-point talk. God is totally transcendent. And he is intimately imminent. He's totally transcendent. But he's also intimately imminent. Imminent being close to us. Totally transcendent. There's a book called Peace Child by a guy called Don Richardson. He tells a story of how he and his wife Carol went to Papua New Guinea to this particular tribal group called the Sa'wi people. And they went and lived among them. You know, they, they learned the language, did all the missionary stuff. And, and he, he eventually got to the point where he knew the language and he could, could speak fluently in it. And he shared the gospel with a tribe of can, cannibal people And when they heard about Judas betraying Jesus, they all laughed and applauded. Because in their culture, uh, treacherous murder was the ideal (laughs) behaviour. So they were applauding Judas more than Jesus. How do you get through to a culture like that? Now, every culture finds some aspects of the Bible hard to embrace... And the Bible challenges every culture at some point as just as it affirms it in other ways. What about our modern western culture? I think our culture has trouble with this point. God is totally transcendent. He doesn't answer to you. He doesn't owe you anything. He is who he is and he does what he pleases. How does that go down with your neighbors and colleagues? He's not your buddy. He's not your mate. He is utterly, awesomely other and far above us. We need to get this straight in our vision of God. He is totally transcendent. Three aspects of this firstly, His majesty. Secondly, His holiness. Thirdly, His name. Majesty. Now, when I preached on this, I think I got everyone to take their shoes off. I'm not going to get you to do that, but imagine you had. How would it feel? Moses here has to uh, approach God but let's read actually from Exodus 3 and we'll we'll pick the story up Moses was tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law the priest of Midian He, he led the flock to the far side of the desert and he came to Horeb the mountain of God there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush Moses saw that though the bush was on fire it did not burn up so Moses thought I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And he Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. What does this imply about our God? It's, it's, a, a, it's utter respect, reverence of, to someone who is infinitely superior. For many years I worked in business. I worked for five years as a headhunter. Not the kind that cuts people's heads off, the kind that does executive recruitment. And I shared an office with a wonderful colleague, British Indian woman called Jyoti. And on one occasion, I answered the phone to my father-in-law, who's a kind of a Essex boy, done good. And I said, hello, mate, to my father-in-law. And when I put the phone down, she turned to me, looking horrified, and said, who were you just speaking to? My father-in-law. Did you say hello, mate, to him? Yeah. She said, if I met my father-in-law, it would not be inappropriate to get down on my knees and touch his head, his his feet, with my forehead. That would be a gesture of respect. This is a woman brought up in this country. Get down on my knees and touch his feet with my forehead to show him respect. And you're calling your father-in-law mate. See, we've lost this sense of, of respect, haven't we? Majesty in our culture. We've got to recapture this for our faith to be biblical faith. God is majestic, utterly different. He deserves uh, absolute respect and honour. Secondly, he is holy. Verse 5 says, do not come any closer because the place you are standing is holy ground. It's the only time in the Bible that ground is described as holy. And it's not because of the ground. It's not that like there's some places that have holy ground and others don't. It's because of the presence of God. He, his presence there in manifested there made the ground holy the text makes clear an interesting point here about the old testament god appeared to moses in the form of an angel did you spot that verse two the angel of the lord appeared to him and verse four when the lord saw that he'd gone over to look god called to him god appears manifests himself as the angel of the lord in the old testament god has chosen to show himself in a form that can be seen and moses is afraid to look at him And it's the presence of God that makes the ground holy because God himself is supremely holy. That means that he is not common. He is set apart and completely other and different from us. He is perfect in every way, morally perfect, pure. His moral perfection is such, the Bible says, he can't even, it's kind of picture language, he can't even bring himself to look at sin. He's so holy. And therefore some distance is required for Moses' safety so as not to intrude on the holiness of God take off your sandals which have got dirt on them and stand back proximity to God in the Old Testament carries a danger to the person who is not properly prepared you know what happened to the high priests only go into the Holy of Holies once a year with ropes on them in case they die in there because no one else is going in after them you have to pull them out God often manifests himself in fire In the Bible, to Abraham he appears as a blazing pot or oven. To Israel he's a pillar of fire at night. And here a burning shrub. Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. Why fire? Because it communicates something to us about the nature of God. His purity, his intensity, his burning holiness. Just as fire refines metal by burning away all impurities, so God is holy majestic holy and look about look at his name god actually shares his personal name here verse read with me chapter 3 verse 13 to 14 moses said to god suppose i go to the israelites and say to them the god of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what's his name then what shall i tell them moses doesn't want the job by the way he's trying to get out of it verse 14 god said to moses i am who i am this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now there's a bit of wordplay going on in the Hebrew language. In verse 14 it's a verb. Echyeh. Which is the first person singular. Means I am. In verse 15 it's a name or a noun. I am. Yahweh. I've put it on your sheet there actually. Uh, under the, in the bracket. Yahweh. Now this, I'm going to step aside here because this is a bit of a sidebar for the real nerds among you. This name is regarded as so holy by the Jewish people, devout Jews, that they would not say it. So if you get a rabbi reading the scriptures in Hebrew, when he comes to this word, he, he replaces the word Yahweh with the word Adonai, which is another word for Lord, but a more common word they wouldn't even say it and the Hebrew languages originally written had no vowels written, it was just a consonant so you can see it there in the brackets it reads from right to left so the little sort of curly one at the top is the Y, Yod, Yahweh. the vowels weren't put on, they would put on the vowels for Adonai Okay, so, so that the guy reading it is not going to make a mistake and read out Yahweh by mistake so as a result, some years ago, people thought it was pronounced Jehovah because of the, the wrong vowels were on it. So Jehovah is actually a mispronunciation. They now think it would be something like Yahweh, but no one knows because the pronunciation wasn't preserved. That's how holy they felt the name of God was. And in our Bibles, out of respect for the Jewish people, we don't print Yahweh. We print Lord in small caps. If you look at your Bible, you'll have it looks like capitals, but the capital L is a bit bigger. It's Lord, but underneath that word, Lord, is the the name of God Himself, Yahweh. A wonderful name. I think it's unfortunate that we don't print it because God gave us His name. He wants us to use it, but of course, in that explanation, of course, you, you can see the reverence that we need to recapture. Okay, that's God's name. A very odd name, isn't it? It means. I am the one who is I am the one who is a very odd name but it goes right to the heart of the problem because Moses is going into Egypt where everything is a god you divinize all the forces of nature all the gods have names to do with who they are so that's true also throughout the ancient Near East Shemesh the sun becomes a god the sun god Ra is the word in Egypt Happy is the deified Nile River, Hect the frog god. All these different things have names and become gods. So, what is God doing with the with the ten signs, the plagues, the plague of frogs, the plague on the Nile, the sun turning to darkness? What is He doing? He's humiliating their gods. He will humiliate Egypt's gods in the ten signs. And God says, when He's going to judge the gods of the Egyptian, My name is he is now if Yahweh means he is then what does that make everyone else's name mean they are not they're not Richard Dawkins is almost right most gods are delusions fictions dreams but not Yahweh he's the one who is Now, some say this is philosophical. God is the only non-contingent being. That's true. But in this context, it more likely means nothing else is God. I am it, he says. That's why you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear Pharaoh or any of the gods he pretends to incarnate. Yahweh is the one and only, the incomparable God. But, you know, even sharing his name like this is a stunning move. Because you know what names do? They advance relationship. Most of you, I don't know your name. But if if we spoke afterward and I learned your name, that's one step forward to a relationship. Once you know my name and I know yours, we can become more intimate. And that leads us from this totally transcendent God to this wonderful second point. God is intimately imminent. Notice here three points. His concern, his closeness and his love. Concern. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, Yahweh said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. I've surely seen, I've heard the cry. I know their sorrows. He's listening, he's looking. He remembers his covenant. He brings it into action. You might say that God here shows us that he lets their suffering in. Let's it in. I've got 5 children. I know I don't look old enough. Uh, five wonderful, mad children, all very different characters. One of my children has a rare disability, and I'll be honest with you: we spend a lot of time in Manchester Children's Hospital. They know him so well in there. The guy at Subway just starts making his sandwich. It's like going ordering the usual, uh, th- and I, there are th- hundreds of. Disabled children, children with, with medical needs in there. And I care about them when I see them. I really do. I care about them in a kind of sympathetic, arm's length way. But there's one child who's suffering gets to me here because he's our son. Whenever we go to the hospital, we come out drained it, because he's in here. Our son now, amazing moment here. God shares he has let the suffering of the Israelites in. He describes them as his son. This is how God knows about, feels about his children's suffering. So this means, Christian friend, this is how the living God feels about your suffering. You know that. This is how Yahweh feels about your suffering. Uh, Do you know it, not just intellectually, but do you really taste it? If not, then seek that and ask him to show it to you in a real way. He's concerned. Secondly, he's close. Verse 8. So I have come down. What a great line. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. I have come down. Now, we shouldn't understand this in some kind of primitive way. You know, God, the ancient people think of God as a, as a, as a person and he, he sort of has a body. This is an, a, a way, an anthropomorphic way, of talking about the transcendent one condescending to come near to us. And with Moses, it was even physical, wasn't it? He saw a form, the burning bush. There was a form near him that he could see. He was afraid to look. But then later, you know, later on in Exodus, Moses had what we could only call face to face encounters, almost. God comes down. You know, God God makes the moves. All the initiative is on his side. Moses was just minding his own business, tending his sheep, you know. Then God breaks in, intrudes, sees this burning shrub. God breaks into space and time. He pushes Moses out of his comfort zone. God rolls up his sleeves, gets really involved. But not as a tyrant or a bully. He has come down to be in relationship. Fascinating how they talk. Think about how transcendent God is. Moses tries to wriggle out of the deal, doesn't he? God listens to him. He responds. It's a real relationship. He's concerned. He's close. And thirdly, finally, it is a relationship of love. Look how God speaks to him. Verse 4. Moses, Moses. The scholars call this the repetition of endearment. The repetition of endearment. You call someone's name twice in the Bible when you love them. Remember when David, David had that son, Absalom, who was a terrible son. He plotted against his father, but David just loved him. And eventually Absalom got killed in his own attempt, his own uprising. And David cried out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. God calls that twice. Moses, Moses. The mighty Yahweh gets Moses' attention and calls him to a task. And it is a task that God has been preparing him for throughout his entire life. Moses has been uniquely prepared for this moment. Amazing. God had him grow up in the the court of Pharaoh. He knows how to operate in the palace. He's learned, Acts chapter 7 says, in all the language and literature of the Egyptians. He knows how to write. He can write the Pentateuch. He's one of, the great, one of the great books of world literature. The first five books of the Bible. Moses, the author. God has been working his whole life long. Even though he's daunted. His childhood, his education. His knowledge of two worlds. The Egyptian world and, and the, the, the world of the shepherd out in the desert. Even that those long years leading the sheep have prepared him for it. How great is the love of God. To, to work it, all these things together. For his purpose, to use us for his glory and for our good. How wonderful is his character? Such a a beautiful combination of majesty and grace and intimacy. And do you know that God has worked in your life that way too? You think half your life's been wasted? It hasn't. God is using you like that in ways that you can't even see. Moses asks him, who am I? And God replies, who I am. And I will be with you. So, what about you, dear friends? Where are you up to at the moment in life? Where are you struggling? Where are you sinning? Where do you feel that God is totally absent? Do you think He's forgotten you? Have you almost forgotten Him? If your life was a house, is there a room where God is not allowed? The living room looks pretty good, but you wouldn't want anyone to see the basement you need a bigger vision of god you need to grasp both sides of his nature his awesome holy total transcendence and you need to grasp equally strongly and actively his incredibly intimate imminence he is right here now right beside you he wants to be near you understand his concern his closeness and his love but you know in closing this all creates a tension a theological tension it's the tension of how these two things can coexist how can a holy God live in the midst of a flammable people you're flammable if you came into the presence of the holy God you'd be burned up and the chapter actually raises this question in a really vivid way because in verse 3 how can the bush be, burn, be burning but not burn up so God is inside it but it's not being destroyed how can this be Moses says Much later, Moses came back to the same spot with the people. It's the site of Mount Sinai. And there God appeared again, much more dramatically, this time on top of the mountain, again speaking from within fire. But Moses knew that God could do it without burning up the people because he'd seen the sign, this bush. Because the word in Hebrew is Sineh. The Sineh bush sounds like Sinai. God could do this. He could appear in all his holy majesty, but not burn the people up. But Moses just didn't know how God can do this. How can he live with people who are flammable? And that mystery was kept from him, but not from you, because it is now revealed to us in Jesus Christ. This you know, isn't the last time in the Bible that an angel appeared to a shepherd and announced good news. It isn't the last time in the Bible that a baby is saved from a genocidal paranoid king. It isn't the last time in the Bible that an unlikely saviour comes out of Egypt, as Joseph and Mary would find out. See, in Jesus Christ, we finally get an answer to how God can live with the flammable people. It's because of the cross. Because of the cross. At the cross, Jesus takes all the fiery wrath of a holy God on himself so these people can go free. And at the cross, an exchange happens that literally rocks the world. You know there was an earthquake? As Jesus finished his work of dying on the cross, a most extraordinary thing happened. Remember the temple curtain? Very thick, massive curtain. It would be taller than this ceiling. This huge, thick, protecting barrier was torn in two. You remember how it was torn? From top to bottom, signalling that it was not torn by a human hand. God himself tore the curtain apart... Uh, At the crucifixion of Jesus. And we tend to think in terms of that the way to God is opened up, which it is. But in light of the burning bush, I think that's not quite right. What's really going on is this now that Jesus has paid for our sins in full, it is safe for God to come out to us. And so the Holy Spirit of God can be released and live in God's people. You remember what happened at Pentecost, a wonderful time, where the promised Holy Spirit came. What came down on the apostles' heads? Tongues of fire. Fire come down, but they were not burned. Because now the Spirit of God lives in you if you are born again. We need a better vision of Him that will equip us for life and ministry and whatever the future holds. Fear Him, ye saints. And you will then have nothing else to fear. Make you his service your delight. He'll make your wants his care. God bless you guys.